0: Well, uh, good morning again and welcome. We are, um, have been engaged in a study of the book of Acts here at South Baton Rouge for a number of weeks now, and we are going to continue in that study this morning. Uh, we're going to pick up at verse 1 of chapter 6 and look at the first seven verses of that chapter. So um, it is in your bulletin if you want to follow along, but you may want to get out a Bible and follow along there. In some ways, I think that's probably better overall, better practice for us if we can do that. But we've got it in the bulletin if you need it. Now, one of the things that we've said about this book uh, a few different times along the way, but one of the the summaries that we've employed is to say that this book records for us both the geographic and the geometric progression of the church during the first 30 or so years after Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. Uh, In fact, in the first chapter of this book, Verse eight of that chapter, we get a kind of a preview of the whole structure of the book in one verse when it says, uh, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." Now, if you were to pull out a, a map of Palestine back in the day and see, uh, you would see how there is actually an, an expanding geographic field indicated by those words and the progression of those words, with Jerusalem on one end, the ends of the earth on the other. And thus far in this study, we've been focusing on that one end, the Jerusalem end, starting to work our way outward to larger and larger areas. Um, The passage before us this morning comes at the end of really the Jerusalem section of the narrative. And so it's in some ways, these are kind of some closing remarks on that Section talking about the ministry in Jerusalem. Uh, But uh, from this point forward, we're going to see some things change. There's going to be a number of events surrounding a man named Stephen, whose uh, life and brief ministry uh, was, uh, even though brief, was um, nevertheless very impactful. And we will see how the things that happened through him. And to him were used by God to move events to the next phase of the church's expansion in those early years. That's a little bit in front of us, but before we look at the um, passage before us this morning, which uh, sets us up for that, uh, let me just invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we look to you, um, reveling in the grace that you have shown us, and yet daring to ask, more grace this morning, not because we don't appreciate the grace you've shown us, but because we just need it all the time. And this morning, Father, we need the grace of understanding and insight into what you're saying to us in your word, and then we need the grace of understanding how it applies to us individually, how it works out in our life. Um, Where we are too complacent, please unsettle us. Where we are distressed and disquieted, please calm us. Where we are confused, bring clarity. Where we are arrogant, bring humility. With the precision of a surgeon, would you please use these truths like the scalpel that they are. To cut away from us uh, anything and everything that does not resemble our Savior. And so to restore our fallenness and to perfectly form and display your image in us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, the passage before us this morning is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Let me read that to you. And uh, as I uh, say that, I want to remind you that what I'm about to read is God's perfectly reliable and completely uh, sufficient and trustworthy word. Luke writes, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, uh, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A uh, fairly simple structure, I think, in the passage. Three things I want us to think about this morning, that is the problem that we see, the response to the problem, and what the result looked like in that day. Firstly, I want to think about the problem. What was the problem? Uh, what, one way of describing it would be to say that the church in Jerusalem was experiencing some significant growing pains. Uh, as we've seen in the previous passages, uh, that God has blessed their work. He has worked through them uh, daily, as well as in sort of big, wet, splashy ways on a number of occasions. And God has used these apostles to draw thousands, literally thousands of people into the church. And, uh, and as these people responded to the gospel... Uh, They found themselves to be part of this rapidly expanding community and this network of believers that was surely spreading throughout the city. And in those early days, uh, Acts tells us one of the things that characterized this burgeoning church was the way that the individual members were involved in each other's lives and the ways that they were sharing their possessions and they were drawing from their own resources to take care of one another. I mean, it was a, it's a beautiful picture of community, of a church community, uh, loving one another and being the way that we ought to be. Uh, unfortunately, the church has grown so rapidly, especially in those early days, that it began to actually outpace its infrastructure. Uh, there were not enough leaders. And along with that, there wasn't enough structure to be able to respond to the growing needs. Acts 6 records one specific example of an area in which the church was struggling to keep up with this expanding situation, Uh, namely the care and provision for widows in the church. Now, uh, back in the day, uh, the ordinary procedure for the care of widows, the social security system was that they would be looked after by their own families, and as long as that was possible, at least. In the event, however, that a widow had no family to help or the family died and and she was destitute, it was the church's responsibility then to look after her and take care of her. Well, it's apparent from the passage that there were a number of widows being looked after in this Jerusalem church, and that number was growing all the time. And while there may have been more than two categories, I think likely there were more than two categories, Uh, in this account there are... Uh, at least two that we know of, and that is there are this one group, uh, two groups into which all these widows fell, or a number of the widows fell, and that is there, there's a group called the Hellenists, and, uh, which is composed of, most likely of people who, uh, whose main language was not Hebrew, but Greek, and uh, who, who uh, did not speak Hebrew at all, possibly, and who had probably grown up in uh, a Greek culture. And adopted maybe a great deal from that culture. The Hebrews were Jews who spoke Hebrew or possibly Aramaic and who had likely not adopted as many influences from the Greek culture. And so they might be regarded as the purest or the more purest forms of Jews and who maybe, because of that fact, did not always look kindly uh, toward the Hellenist Jews with the Greek origins. And the opposite was probably true as well. It's probably a two-way street. Some of the Hellenist Jews may have looked down upon the Hebrew Jews because they seemed isolated or maybe out of touch with their context. At any rate, and again, there was this problem that had arisen and was related to the distribution of food that was taking place in the Christian community. And so uh, that description that appears earlier in Acts of, of them taking care of one another, that's sort of describing this, this situation in a general way as we read about Christians sharing their possessions. And uh, this included the sharing of food with one another. And all of that's a good thing. Um, and it is a beautiful picture of Christian community in action. But it, while it may have started out pretty smoothly um, as the church's roles uh, grew, and as you know, hundreds of people and sometimes thousands of people came in overnight, literally, um, then they began to struggle to deal with this situation in a completely equitable fashion. Uh, and so the passage says In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. As those words indicate, eventually it came to light, either by some of the widows themselves who were being neglected or possibly by someone who noticed that they were being neglected or both. However it happened, it came to light that they were missing out in the food distribution. Some people were getting help, some widows were not. And not only that, the passage tells us that it was the Hellenist widows who were missing out. So there was a pattern to the neglect that was taking place a pattern that was picked up on, reported to the apostles. Now, commentators have discussed this fact that there was a patterned neglect taking place, and some of them have wondered out loud what, if anything, this meant. Was this evidence of some uh, ongoing or incipient racism in the church? Maybe. Uh, Or was it evidence of a, a kind of elitism in the church? That's possible as well. You know, were the the Hebrew widows, the ones who spoke the mother tongue, who were immersed in their Jewish culture and heritage, were they maybe given preferential treatment over those who were not, who didn't speak Hebrew, who had possibly converted to Judaism from another cultural background? Was that kind of thing going on? Um, It's possible. Uh, The church is certainly capable uh, and has been guilty of and continues to be guilty of every conceivable sin uh, including racism, including elitism, and a lot of other uh, isms. However, it seems to me that if that were the case, if that were the underlying uh, issue here, that more would have been said about that in this passage. It seems that if that was the heart issue, then the apostles would not have just used sort of organizational language to talk about this problem, which is exactly what they did. And so as an alternative view... Uh, it's possible, you know, that the neglect, and I think even the patterned neglect, could simply be a result of the dynamics of the situation. Uh, you know, if the, the particular food provision ministry was initially being overseen and managed by the apostles, right, the twelve, then it would make sense... That as they saw needs and responded to needs that they among the widows, that they would most likely and most naturally see and run into those things in their own natural networks, their own natural relational networks, and the relational web. And given their own Hebrew background and origins, they would have ended up ministering to a lot of Hebrew widows just following those natural networks. And then the numbers started pouring in, and the church was growing by leaps and bounds, thousands coming in, and not to mention this, the daily response of the, the individual ministries of the apostles. So it's not hard to imagine in that kind of scenario how people might fall through the cracks, but not necessarily through any intentional uh, pattern, neglect. You know, it's not hard to imagine how the apostles trying to juggle the meeting of practical needs with their contingency. This whole time, the church is growing and they're trying to keep preaching and and healing, and the church is going there trying to meet these needs, and they're running back and forth, and they're, they're kind of running out of steam, and, and, and the reach can only go so far. And all of that's going on. And so, you know, it's not difficult, at least to me, it seems, to see how whole segments of the growing community might have been overlooked from time to time as the church struggled to deal with the phenomenal growth that was taking place. And, and please note, we're talking about a, a good church here. The Jerusalem church was a good church. It was a growing church. A strong and getting stronger church. And still it had these kinds of problems. You know, it's a good church but opportunities were being missed. It's a good church people were being overlooked. It was a good church but some stomachs were empty. It was a good church but feelings were being hurt. So that was the problem. The Hellenist widows being overlooked in the food distribution, what do the apostles do about it? How do they respond? Several things I want to highlight in answering those questions. Uh, First of all, they responded in a way that shows that they recognize a need for a division of labor. Uh, Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who will point to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer, the ministry of the Word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, that's the Hellenists and the Hebrews together, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procorus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, proselyte of Antioch, and they set these before the apostles, they prayed for them, and they laid their hands on them, and sent them out. Now, there are, as always, a number of things to notice um, in any any passage like that. Um, For one thing, this response, uh, I think, seems to support the suggestion that whatever was behind the food distribution problem, it likely wasn't the result of some intentional targeted neglect of one group by another in the church. Because, again, if that was the case, it seems like the apostles would have said more than what they did here. But they didn't. They didn't talk about people acting hatefully. They didn't talk about people acting prejudicially and how they needed to stop that. They talked about the situation from a logistical or a giftedness perspective. They talked about the way that the current situation was causing them, the apostles, to have to actually pull away from and neglect their primary calling, which was to pray and to preach the Word of God. In noting all of this, you have to understand... Uh, in pointing these things out, the, what the apostles aren't saying. And we need to be clear on what they're not saying. The apostles aren't saying or suggesting by their comments that, that their ministry was superior. Uh, they were not saying or suggesting that the ministry of serving tables was somehow beneath them. Right? The, the, the apostles' perspective on these matters is, I believe, uh, very clearly reflected in later writings by the apostle Paul. Places like 1 Corinthians 12... Romans 12, which have a lot to say about the church and how it ought to function and how it ought to look. And in those passages, maybe you remember, the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of the human body to talk about the body of Christ. So the community of believers that make up the church. And amongst other things, Paul says, uh, he talks about how the human body has many different parts. And how all of those parts are necessary. How each individual part needs and relies on all the other parts. For the body to be uh, one whole and to function as it should. So, you know, asking or expecting a hand to function as a foot is not good for the hand or the foot or for the whole body, for that matter. By the same token, for the apostles who were appointed to preach the word, and so maybe they were like a mouth, uh, to have more and more of their time occupied by taking care of the widows, so maybe more like a hand... That sort of situation, if you allow that to continue, will not be a good thing for the apostles, for the others that are ministering, or for the, the church as a whole. It will not be a good thing for that to continue. Of course, that isn't to say that the apostles couldn't involve themselves in other aspects of the church's life and ministry. They could, and no doubt uh, did. But when those other things started to take them away from doing what their primary role was to be, then that's a problem. Um, Now, maybe things hadn't quite developed to that level of complete dysfunction in the Jerusalem church by the time we read this account, but the writing was on the wall, and I think the apostles could see it coming very rapidly. And so the, the principle that is, I think, here applied to the apostles, that principle is equally applicable in other directions as well. In other words, it's not just the apostles' ministry of the word that needs protecting, Right? The ministry roles of others in the body of Christ are equally in need of protection. Right? There ought to be in the church, there ought to be a generalized concern to do those things which enable people to best carry out their role in the body of Christ. And to not hinder them in that way. And that applies to those who serve as elders or deacons, to those who lead studies or small groups, who work with youth, those who lead in singing or playing instruments, who head up certain ministries or outreaches on behalf of the church. That principle applies. So the first thing to see about the apostles' response is to say that they recognized that there was a need for a division of labor in the church for people to understand and to value and then carry out their differing roles in a way that helped the whole church benefit. A second thing to see about the apostles' response is this. They saw a need for the church, that is, the church members. They saw it as important that the members actually were involved in sorting out this problem and addressing this need. Uh, to put it another way, they, they trusted, they actually entrusted the church with the responsibility of selecting from amongst themselves persons that would address the widow food distribution problem. Uh, that isn't this, that, you know, that's not to say that they were completely removed from the process. They weren't. I mean, they, they're the ones that determined that it needed to happen, that uh, s- some of these men needed to be set apart. Uh, they determined how many should be set apart, seven. And then they determined what the selection criteria setting them apart ought to be. So they're very much involved, but what came to the point of actually choosing the people, he said, that's your job. You, congregation, that is your job to pay attention to what we said and to choose well in this area. Nobody was assigned to them. They had to be chosen. And that process, the process of congregations choosing their leaders was later enshrined in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul when he wrote his letter to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. In chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul provides two different sets of criteria, one for elders and another for deacons. And he does that because he wants the Ephesian congregation to know what they ought to be looking for when it comes to church officers. And so he gives them a list, and he gives them a list of externally observable Criteria, Like he doesn't expect any of the people to be able to look into somebody's heart and see these invisible qualities about people. All the criteria he gives are externally observable criteria and measurable criteria. And so so that people could could take a list like that and they could say, well, yeah, this person really matches this description. Or no, I I don't see a lot of correspondence between these things and this person there. You've heard me say this many times in the past, but that's never stopped me before. So it's like the slipper in the Cinderella story, right? So uh, the prince is going around trying to find uh, this woman that he's in love with, and he tries it on all kinds of different women until he finds Cindy. And then, you know, they run off happy ever after. And so in a similar fashion, right, in a similar fashion, uh, Paul wants his, uh, the people in Ephesus to take this list, and use it like a mental slipper and try it on all sorts of people until you find a good fit. And you say, ah, I found an elder. I I found a deacon. I found another elder. That's how he wants them to use it, just like in the Cinderella story. And what that means is, among other things, is that congregations have tremendous power and tremendous opportunity in this area. A congregation has the ability to set trajectories for its church. And those can be good trajectories or not so good. They can, they can set one uh, that will be wise or one that will be foolish. As they determine those who they are going to set apart amongst themselves as leaders. Those whom God's already gifted and he wants you to just notice and identify them and set them apart for that task. The Jerusalem church, back in the day, this passage, this story is right there. They're at that point where they're exercising this tremendous power and privilege and responsibility. And so this is a crucial moment in the life of the early church. Absolutely crucial. This is like the first class after the apostles. So important that they get this right. Which leads to the other thing I want you to notice, and that is the criteria that they're given to help them in this selection process. The apostles tell the people that for the task that they've identified, there are three things they need to look for. Firstly, needs to be a guy who has a good reputation, he says. Of good repute is the wording of the passage. And please note, uh, the passage doesn't say where. It doesn't say in what context he is to have that good reputation, Uh, It doesn't say he has a good reputation in the business community. Uh, He should have a good reputation uh, in his neighborhood. Uh, It doesn't say any of those things. It just says men of good repute. And I, I think that's for a reason. I think it's purposely vague. Because with this criteria stated as it was, what the apostles are saying is this. Choose men that have a consistently good reputation wherever you look in their life. Don't set apart a guy whose neighbors or friend or family or work colleagues would be surprised to discover he was a leader in the church. The second criteria is full of the Spirit. They're known to be spiritually minded men, godly men, whose life displays the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. What is that? Love. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things were to be evident. So the first criteria, being of good repute, has to do with the person's general perception in various contexts, sort of out there in the world. The second criteria has to do with the person's perception amongst the people of God who know about these things like being full of the Spirit, who understand what that looks like and what to look for. And the third criteria is full of wisdom, which I think here is referring to practical wisdom, right? Wisdom is about more than just having right information or right knowledge. It is about knowing what to do with the information, the knowledge you have, right? So uh, knowledge tells you that tomato is a fruit, and wisdom tells you not to put it in a fruit salad. And there's a difference there. But here's the question. Why these criteria? I mean, the ministry they're being set apart for is food distribution. Serving tables. As Luke describes it. Probably referring to the context in which it typically happened, not in a Meals and Wheels sort of way, but when a community was gathered and people were at table. Right? But why these qualifications? If it's just about serving food, shouldn't the qualifications have been something like has arms and legs, can speak in complete sentences, breathing? (laughs) If that's really all it's about. I'll tell you why, because what they were being set apart for was not a task. It was a ministry. It wasn't just about alleviating hunger in principle. It was about serving actual people. People who were dealing with a lot of things and hunger was just one of them. It wasn't about being a servant in a box checking sort of way. It was about serving merely because it's important to be a servant and Jesus was a servant, so well, we should do that too so I can check that box. It's not about that kind of service. It was about having compassion on and caring for people who were hurting and broken and in need and then the compassion and the care pull you into service because you cannot help yourself. That kind of ministry, that kind of food distribution, serving tables, that calls for spiritually minded people. Anybody can hand somebody a tray of food but it takes insight and wisdom to see beyond The immediate need, which is almost always only the presenting need, that if you start digging around, you discover it's flowing out of much deeper needs that have not yet surfaced. Uh, I had this driven home to me in a sort of painful, but I'm thankful to God for it sort of way, Uh, even just this past week. a man who I'd seen a number of times, who I have uh, helped him out. He's a homeless man. He hangs out near one of the places where I do, do work, one of the coffee shops, and uh, and I was in a hurry and uh, going to a meeting. I was leaving the building. I saw him there, and I said, uh, "I said, have you have you eaten today?" And he said, "No." So I reached in my pocket and I handed him some money, and I started to keep moving on. and And he said, "He said, thank you." He's always thankful. And he said, hey, would you like to eat with me? And all of a sudden, he became a person. Not just an object of compassion. He had a bigger need than just being hungry. He didn't want just a cup of coffee. He wants a coffee with somebody. Knowing these things, the apostles set the bar pretty high, and they tasked the congregation with making good choices in this area, which they did, as later passages in acts will confirm. And the apostles then lay their hands on them, which is simply a way to authorize their ministry and set them apart in the eyes of the people. And when they did that, you know, nothing magical happened, like no power was conferred or anything like that. It's just saying, we're we're, giving, we're entrusting this ministry to you. It's helpful for them, it's helpful for the congregation. So they do this, what's the result? And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Three things are said that demonstrate some of the results of their taking the steps that they did. So the word of God continued to increase, which means the preaching of the word of God continued to increase, especially now, right, that the apostles have more time to more fully give their attention back to their original task. In other words, what they did, this structure they set up, worked. It was a good move. It was a helpful change. It was a useful structure. Second thing, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. So not only was the preaching of the Word of God increasing, but the response to the preaching of the Word of God was increasing. Now, be sure there isn't always a one-to-one correspondence between those things. Sometimes faithful ministry will go on for quite some time, and there will be little or no response. Um, There can be seasons of that. Sometimes there can be long seasons of that. If you're a Jeremiah, there can be a painfully long season of that. But in this case here, and in terms of the overall pattern of things, faithfulness, in the ministry of the word, does more often than not correspond to a pattern of fruitful responsiveness. Third thing that said, and it's somewhat surprising, maybe, I don't know if you caught this, it says a great many of the priests, the Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. Scholars tell us, I don't know where they get this from. I I respect these scholars. I I know they do their own work, but uh, I'm glad they did it. Roughly 18,000 priests at that time In that day. So I don't know how many. Actually a great many of 18,000 is in actual numbers. But whatever it is. It's significant. A great many of 18,000 is a lot of people. That's good. It's good and bad. It's good in terms of people responding. In the gospel absolutely. But it was bad. In that it had to. That kind of response from, from the priests. Right? It would then be viewed as defectors. That kind of response would only have made the situation that much more dangerous for the church. Would only have upset the authorities that much more. And, um, and that will all become uh, more evident, painfully evident, very shortly in the book of Acts. So once again, we see in these verses a problem, response, and finally a result. And uh, that really kind of wraps up what the passage is talking about. Uh, And uh, I want to close out our study, but I want to make three sort of parting observations as I do. Uh, Firstly, as you may or may not be aware, uh, this passage is one that is often seen as that which describes the origin uh, of the office of deacon in the church. Um, Our own denomination takes that view of this passage. Uh, I have to say that personally I am not convinced that that is the case. Um, I I see no evidence, it could be, but I see no evidence here that is absolutely compellingly conclusive in that regard. It may be the case, but if it is the case, then the picture of diaconal ministry and diaconal work that emerges both from this passage and from passages that follow from this as you look at the lives of some of these uh, possible deacons But if you look at their lives, the picture that emerges there is bigger and more expansive than the shape that diaconal ministries have often taken in a number of our churches and in other churches outside our denomination. Uh, In many places, diaconal ministry has been reduced to dealing with money, dealing with buildings, dealing with property, and the spiritual aspect of the ministry and the people-intensive mercy-driven core of diaconal ministry has been severely curtailed. And in some cases, it's altogether missing. So if we do take this, if this is the beginning of diaconal ministries, we would do well to pay really close attention and even better attention to what goes on here and what the shape was of their ministry and how they carried it out, not just in this passage, but in subsequent passages. A second observation flows out of that, and it's simply this. As Stott observes, this passage pushes us to consider and perhaps reconsider how we approach and think about this thing that we call ministry. Because uh, the word that is used to describe the ministry of the apostles is the same word that gets used to describe the ministry of the seven who are set apart. And I might add, it is the same word that is used to describe the ministry of individual persons in the church as they serve as they encourage, as they help one another. That being the case, uh, I think we need to abandon uh, the unhelpful practice of saying things like, for example, someone who's going off to seminary to train, uh, I think it's unhelpful for us to say that they are preparing for the ministry. The ministry as if it only applied to one sort of situation. On the contrary, we need to see that the ministry is not the exclusive, uh, exclusive possession of a subset of the people of God. But in fact, ministry is a right and responsibility and expectation for all of God's people. In our membership seminars, we talk about this. We, uh, we'll use the language of sports sometimes because it's Baton Rouge. And in the church, we need to see ourselves as a, uh, a collection of people who are either players or player coaches, but there are no spectators and there is no bench. Does that mean there are no distinctions? Absolutely not. There are. There are pastors and teachers and deacons and elders and people who are especially gifted in particular ways. There are roles and relationships and distinctions to be made and preserved and respected. But the difference between one person and the next in the church Is and ought never be that one of them is seen as being in the ministry and one of them isn't. Or that one of us, uh, that some of us minister to other people and have a ministry, but the rest of us don't. Um, We ought not concern ourselves with that, right? That's not how it should be. Um, You've heard me use this illustration before, and I've seen this church sign uh, and it's always stuck with me that under the name of the church in the space where it says minister, there's a colon and usually there's a person's name there. On this particular sign, it said minister colon the entire congregation. I think that's right. I think that's spot on. Finally, the passage illustrates among other things that there is a need for balance in the church's understanding and practice. We're not all about the head and heart but unconcerned with the body and emotions, or vice versa. Our ministry is to the whole person. Uh, As Keller observes, uh, the social pastoral needs in the church were threatening. Uh, He's looking at this situation he's saying, the social pastoral needs in the church were threatening to shut down the Jerusalem church's gospel proclamation and witness. So the two have a, a symbiotic relationship. Neglecting pastoral care will cause the megaphone of need to drown out the megaphone of the gospel and will make people think that all you're interested in is notches on Bibles and getting people through the doors of your church. On the other hand, neglecting the gospel, tending to needs, but not addressing the heart and the mind will result in the church's stagnation, people not hearing the words of life and coming to the wrong conclusions about you, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And it will actually leave their deepest need. You can meet all their other needs, but you can leave their deepest need, their alienation from God, completely unaddressed. So we've got to have both. That balance has to be there in the church. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your kindness to us in preserving these these vignettes of the early church and uh, seeing what you did and how you worked, uh, how your people responded. We thank you for the the lessons that these are, the truths that these are for us as a church. And uh, we pray that you would use us as the inheritors of the very things that we're reading, as the, the results of the things that we're reading right now, one of the results. And so use us, Father, um, to continue the work that we are watching start right here, that we are studying and seeing the working out of your purposes and your kingdom and your gospel. Help us to be a continuing part of that. And, uh, do all the work that's necessary individually and then structurally incorporate in this church to make that happen. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. And now i take up an offering for those that want to support uh, the ministries of this church and then other ministries that we support through this church.